1: Roseanne
2: began to withdraw from family commitments and instead started going down a QAnon rabbit hole of child trafficking conspiracy
0: theories. She was like, hey, have you heard about this? And I was like, no. So she researched it. So I left there at probably five o'clock in the evening and she texted me at seven o'clock in the morning. She had been up all night watching YouTube.
3: Hey, everybody, welcome in to another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon and I'm Nick Saveri on the program today. Hey, don't send a text message on January 6th. Uh, <laughs> the January 6th committee has had some bombshells in the past few weeks. Nick and I with the latest on some skating text messages released from the committee. Speaking of January 6th, the number one podcast in America, Nick from MSNB. Well, Go ahead. For,
1: for now, but right yeah. for now, right,
3: right. The number one podcast in America meets uh, in the top 10 podcasts on good pods uh, from MSNBC is American Radical. The story of who killed Roseanne Boylan. She was a capital rioter who died on January 6th during the breach of the Capitol and the host and producer of this fantastic series. I highly recommend it. You, if you follow me on social media, you know, I've been talking about this series a lot, but Eamon Mohideen and Preeti Varathan are going to be on the program today. They're going to break down everything about this series. It's this five part epic podcast that's available wherever you get your podcast really goes in depth into the relationship that Eamon had uh, with uh, uh, Roseanne's brother-in-law and how he got connected with this story. And, you know, they spent the year on the ground kind of covering all of this, the rabbit holes that she got down, as you heard in the clip that just played at the top of the show. So they'll be joining us later on the program. Nick. How are you doing, buddy, man? We got a lot to talk about. We've been excited about this episode. You know, just as a side note, I was texting my father, you know, and I he's like, who you got coming on the, sh- on the show this week? And I said, I got Amen. And he goes, Amen. Mohideen? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I watch him every Sunday. My dad's not a big Sunday night football guy. Like if, if the game's boring, he'll switch over. So it was pretty, it was pretty funny. He'll be listening to this one. He's like, he's like how do I get that podcast thing that you do again? So, dad if you're listening welcome to welcome to the show finally uh but nick
1: how are you been i'm good man it's an awesome story um i actually you know in terms of recruiting people to uh Amon's program uh my wife became a huge fan too i just shared with her the overall premise and what i've been telling people is the hype and the excitement that we all had about cereal you know the first season uh although seasons two and three were, were great too it was the first time i recall a podcast Being spoken of almost like an album release, like every you know every week. Have you have you listened to it yet? I mean, I had people that were like just literally just hanging out on a couch listening to it, like old time radio, folks. If you have not caught this show, it will bring you back to the hype of season one of Serial. Every episode is just gripping. It's an incredible story. What happened to this poor young woman? Um, And just everything swirling around it. If you're looking for a really Easy way to access at a very personal level the impact of January 6th. I cannot, Mike, I'll speak for Mike on this one too. We cannot emphasize enough downloading this show, following the show. And the people who are responsible for that show are with us today.
3: Yeah. It's it's a fantastic series. The episodes are like under 35 minutes. I think the longest one may be 40. It's, and that's the kind of format that and the number that you and I always look to aim, you know, to hit on this show. Um, listen, let's get into the beginning before I was mentioning this about January 6th, the latest news that's happening around the January 6th committee. You've s- seen this news happening now over the last week or so, the recent text messages that were going to Mark Meadows on the day of the Capitol attack, uh, from Donald Trump Jr. to Fox News host Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity urging Mark Meadows to get then-president Donald Trump to tell his supporters to leave the Capitol. Right Then on Friday, a bombshell got released as there was a text exchange that was attributed to a House representative. It was unknown at the time as to who was sending a text message to Mark Meadows and what that entailed. And then Jake Tapper and CNN broke the story on Friday night as to the identity of that person. Take a listen to this.
4: We are learning more about that text message to former President Trump's then chief of staff, Mark Meadows, one that outlined a way to deliver the election to Trump before the votes had even finished being counted. Three sources tell me and my colleague Jamie Gengel. The members of the bipartisan House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection believe that former Energy Secretary and Texas Governor Republican Rick Perry texted Mark Meadows on November 4th. That's the day after the election. Now, multiple sources who have Perry's phone number and, separately, databases of phone numbers confirm that the number from which that text was sent, which CNN obtained from a source, that number belongs to Rick Perry, that unsettling text message sent while votes were still being counted in several states. It said, quote, here's an aggressive strategy. Why can't the states of Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania and other Republican controlled state houses declare this is BS where conflicts and election not called that night and just send their own electors to vote and have it go to SCOTUS.
3: So as you heard there in the report, it was uh, Rick Perry who worked in the cabinet for then President Donald Trump, who sent those text message exchanges. Obviously, the phone number has been confirmed. Jake Tapper actually later on in the program had a segment with S.E. Cup, if you know her, the conservative writer for the New York Daily News. Uh, she's also you know been a co-host on The View here and there. Uh, she was the one who confirmed the phone number because she's worked with Rick Perry on something else. In the mental health space, funny enough, we just read an ad read for better help. But um, a spokesperson for Rick Perry told CNN that the former energy secretary denies being the author of the text. But when he got confronted with the phone number that matched to Rick Perry, he said, oh, I don't know anything and have no comment. So (laughs) a lot there here, you know, you heard the text message there about why can't these states of Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania and the other Republican controlled state houses declare that this is B.S. I mean, Nick, I know you've got a bunch on this, but to see these text messages start to come to life in something, when we had Frank Fuglouzi on, we, you know, we, we asked him about how he felt about lawmakers really downplaying this and calling January 6th, FBI crisis actors and the nonsensical things like that. But now what you're seeing is this, wait a minute, this event was serious because they were sending text messages to try to get the president of the United States to condemn this, to go on television from people at Fox News, right? Three, three specific hosts, Brian Kilmeade as well, was thrown into that mix to now people that are in his own cabinet as the votes are being counted are like, hey, this is all BS. Like, this, you know, we've had a bunch of people on this show talking about the severity of this issue and somehow, not somehow, we know how, Republicans are great at messaging and you got the Ron Johnson's out there and Jim Jordan saying that it wasn't that big a deal and everybody was there and peaceful and singing kumbaya. And we know that that is not true. And the producers and hosts of a show about somebody who died that day are going to come on later to tell us that it was not, you know, FBI crisis actors. But when you, when you saw these text messages, I was, I was texting you some of this stuff as I was watching it in real time on Friday. Give me some of your initial thoughts uh, when you saw this come across the scroll.
1: Yeah, similar to you, Mike, the first thing that, that came for me is just a connection of dots. You know, we're talking about shortly the, after the election. And even before the election, let's remember how the president was framing the potential of him losing. It began with, well, if I lose, clearly something went wrong with the election. You know, everything is telling me I should be fine. So from the jump, the Republicans, specifically Trump, had laid out a foundation for that. If I lose, something was amiss. And Republicans had already started questioning mail-in voting and all these additional practices to a fair election. And I cannot emphasize that enough. What Rick Perry's text points to, and similar to what Trump's messaging speaks to, is that there's a thread here, a narrative thread, prior to the election, shortly after the election, up until January 6th, and even up and going past that to what the committee's finding. The Republicans, at least some people in the Republican Party, had an idea. And let's also go back to the PowerPoint that we started seeing slides of, which was a terrible PowerPoint. Anyway, if you've ever built a decent deck, that was embarrassment to all of us in the field. Anyway. Listen, wait a minute. Before you go
3: any further, I just did a phenomenal PowerPoint presentation the other day because my company still uses PowerPoint for some reason, hasn't transferred over to Keynote. So if anybody's interested in seeing this sports demo PowerPoint presentation that I did, I uh, hit us up. Can we please talk podcast at gmail.com? You will get an exclusive on that. I'll show you how to do a real PowerPoint. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah. And, and I've seen
1: other decks. Mike's done. He's not kidding around that, but, but the, it's just chilling. And I think that's, but this is the other thing that I'm going to, That it's important to emphasize the Republicans scheme here seems to be, yeah, all these things happened, but wasn't a crime. It's the George Casanza d- defense again all these things are showing up. And this constant question of what, if anything, was illegal? Because even when we see Rick Perry's text, basically it's saying, this is BS. Hey, here's a strategy if we want to undo the findings of a fair election. Now, simply texting that is in and of itself, maybe not a crime. Again, we have to talk to someone like Ellie or other legal experts that we've had on the show about that. But when you connect that, to what we saw throughout those coming throughout those months after going up until January 6th there's a narrative thread that that points to that some people in the Republican party had a plan in place that if the election didn't go the way they wanted it to there was a way to de-legitim- delegitimize it and we saw that on January 6th with the president at the time saying hey go to go to congress Let your voice be heard. We're going to take this back. A lot of rhetoric that, by the way, if you listen to this great podcast, American Radical, you hear these clips. And it's really jarring because what you heard in that moment was President Trump sounding a lot like a fascist, sounding a lot like some of these leaders we've seen in other parts of the world that in a free election will immediately say, well, this is illegal. And the only difference is that in this country, it's not enough to simply say that as a leader of this country, you don't have access to the military in a way that's going to ensure that you're going to be able to instill a coup, thankfully. Right. Listen, these are all, yeah, these are all definitely tied together though. You know, if
3: you've been listening to the program and obviously, you know that I work at Fox News and I've been mentioning before as we've had guests on, or even when we've done segments about news judgment and the reason why we started the show, I mentioned to you guys a bunch of times. Sean Hannity does not feel like this all the time. Is he conservative? Sure. Is Laura Ingram conservative? Sure. You're allowed to be conservative. Nobody's saying that. You're just not allowed to make up these alternative facts, as Kellyanne Conway once said. And that problem is, is that these these guys, right, go on, guys and gals, they go on air and say something different, and off air they're doing something different. And I know because I was in the building and I worked in the building. And so, the, the, you know, that's the thing. Like, we got to get back to, you know, experts, you know, firsthand accounts. Like, this is serious stuff. It, and they're saying in the same vein as text messages are being read, you know, in this committee, that, hey, get him, out, you know, get him to denounce this stuff, get him in front of a, a television camera. He's ruining his legacy. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing some of this stuff. But then they're going on television weeks later, having lawmakers on because, again, Republicans are great at messaging um, to say, no, this wasn't that big a deal. This wasn't that big a deal. No, 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 no. It was a peaceful. Remember, peaceful. It was a peaceful protest. Sure. It may have started as that. But it pivoted <laughs> similar to what we've mentioned about other other industries pivoting or whatever. Um, I'm not as shocked about seeing those text messages from the Fox News folks, the Laura Ingrams, and specifically Sean Hannity, who has like a direct pipeline into the president. And I've heard other podcasts be like, man, he's texting they're texting Mark Meadows, but not the president. It's like folks I'm sure they texted Trump you know like come on they he has they have his number it's that he wasn't answering and Mark Meadows was probably responding back but I'm not as shocked about that the Rick Perry one that I saw on on, that happened on Friday that broke the reason why I brought it over here it was it was his spokesperson denying it and then them showing the phone number three people that all have Rick Perry's phone number that have worked with him in the past, or all like, yeah, that's his phone number, and he and his spokespeople are like, nah, that's not. Well, no comment. It, it's like, <laughs> are these did the January? Was January sixth bad or was it good? Because you can't have it both ways if you're going to then send these type of text messages and then give the the op- the polar opposite message uh, on television and that's part of the reason why we started the show right like you, you, well, I want to get back to political discourse being republicans and democrats We're, right now we have republicans de- democrats and then some ter- tertiary party that nobody can identify that makes up whatever they want and hits on the key buzzwords that you've all heard because the talking points are distributed. And it's just like this watered down, you're going to say, you know, extremely racist party, but it it is something else that we have never seen in this country that's rising as a third party because it's not representative of the, as Bill Maher likes to say, the classic Republican. It's something else. And no one has ever seen this metastasized like this and like what this formation has become. It's these text messages are, are insane to me at least you know again as somebody who has worked in that building
1: yeah i think i'm glad you brought you know the the host at fox um i think it's a very it's a very telling thing that on air we're hearing a persona and you and i have talked about this before we specifically talked about tucker carlson i still believe if i ran into him at a bar or at a restaurant or something and we're having a conversation i think i run into a different person that that's on television every night
3: listen I have told Nick, this is for our audience. I have told Nick this several times and he has said, I'm not doing it. And I also, I'm not doing it because we've been talking about how disingenuous they are. One phone call, one phone call, Nick and I right now have a pipeline into former president Trump. We have a pipeline into Tucker Carlson. We could have these folks on the show, but look, we got, we got a host of an MSNBC show coming up in the next segment, but we, you and I know there's a level of disingenuousness there, especially from Tucker, the, the the former president. You know, giving him another platform is something he doesn't need. I don't even know if he knows how to use Zoom. But, like, I, I don't want to do that. I want to I want to live in reality. I want to live in in truth. We have Mike Emanuel on because from Fox News, why? Because I've mentioned this a bunch. Fox will get sued into oblivion if they don't have at least one or two guys that does the news on the weekend. They just lost one in Chris Wallace. <laughs> so now they got Brett Bear and they got Mike Emanuel and a few others that actually do the news. You don't see any controversy with that. That's how you cloak it within this network of, you know, disguised as being news because you got the opinion guys. Oh, no, it's just levity and nobody takes them serious. Yeah, sure. Between eight to 11 uh, on Monday through Friday. And then you bury the news on the weekend. And that's why we've had Mike on the program. He knows that he's not going to say that. I'm going to say it for him because I've been in that building. But anyway, go ahead. I didn't want to mess up your train of
1: thought. Yeah, no, no. I I that's, I think, yeah, we're just hitting on all the notes that we've talked about through text that we play out on this show. It's the scary part because I think what you're speaking to, you know, these militia groups, what really is at the core of MAGA, um, Republicans, at least, you know, those on Fox News or, you know, just some people in the party are courting that. Do I think that these people, at least these hosts on Fox, actually subscribe to these things? No, because it's um, something as simple as, Carlson will say things about you know vaccines and being anti-vax and stuff, but you know damn well he got vaccinated. So is he really about that life? Is he? He surely he surely Kyrie right? Right. So so it's an act, and and they so much as admitted between the hours of eight and ten this isn't news. This is commentary, um, and they're not the only network to do it. Let's be honest about that, but. It is scary because they're courting an element in this country of people who are about that life. And that's what you saw on January 6th. And those are the people that even people within the party, someone even like Don Jr., you know, Trump's kid, is like, dude, dad's got to do something about that. Now, you can include the joke here. Why didn't he text his father? And that's a whole nother conversation. Again, I'm sure he did. He probably did. But that's the frightening stuff is that they stir the pot. They've got these people to this point, and they're just turning and turning them toward Congress. And that's exactly what we saw on January 6th, specifically played out by the central figure in the podcast and you know those folks that we're going to be talking to in a moment.
3: That is a perfect segue. Nick, you teed it up. I'm going to swing it out of the park. When we come back after the break, the host and producer of the number one podcast, folks, if you have Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, Amin Mohideen Preeti. Verathon are going to be on the program when we come back after the break.
2: January 6, 2021. The situation at the U.S. Capitol is rapidly spiraling out of control.
1: We are having a couple of reports of people being injured uh, in this breach of the security. All told, and at least 15 calls for injuries uh, from the Capitol, but all these numbers are expected to increase. Per the to female, person. clearly well, a please. lot of blood, uh, and the uh, workers who are tending to her uh, clearly attempting some resuscitation efforts.
2: The rioters trying to stop Congress from certifying the presidential election are overrunning police barricades and breaking through windows along the eastern side of the building.
3: Today's episode of the pod is presented by the good folks at BetterHelp, betterhelp.com. Uh, Nick, is something preventing you from achieving your goals? What interferes with your happiness?
1: My kids. No, I'm just messing. <laughs> Jeez.
3: No, I, no, I, I love hey, my BetterHelp, no. clip that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no. Um, that's a great question, man. I feel like I need more time to process that, but um, I, I would say it's me. I think like most people, I, I think... We tend to get in the way of our own pursuit of happiness for a variety of reasons. Obviously, I coach by trade, so um, that's a lot of the work that I do. But BetterHelp's an amazing service, man. Tell them more about it, Mike. You know, that is some great insight
3: right there. BetterHelp, if you're listening, Nick's available to be a therapist because BetterHelp will slow down
1: that one, but okay.
3: <laughs> right. well they'll still go through the vetting process but of course BetterHelp will assess your needs they match you with your own licensed professional therapist you know mental health is big these days folks and and and, and seriously you know you're seeing companies start new initiatives you know, to give employees days off. The company I work at has done something recently to to try to give a week off to people. I know a lot of people in the technology space are overworked during the holidays. You're trying to create all this great content and these new streaming services. And, you know, you, you get a little fried and BetterHelp is there. It connects you in a safe, private online environment. It's so convenient. You can start communicating in under 48 hours, now listen, it's not a it's not a crisis line. It's not a self help. It's a it's a professional counseling done securely online. You can send a message to your counselor anytime, and you get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Nobody hates sitting in a waiting room more than me. Uh, BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. The service is also available for clients worldwide, and you can find a particular expertise you need online. Don't limit yourself to the counselors just located near you. It's available in all 50 states. If you want to start living a happier life today, as a listener of Can We Please Talk, you're going to get 10% off your first month By visiting BetterHelp.com backslash listener, join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp.com backslash listener. All right, Nick, I'm going to be honest for a second. We've done about 70 episodes on this great show. We've had luminaries, American historians, professors like our buddy Michael Eric Dyson, New York Times bestselling authors, correspondents across the news landscape, I got a little secret for everybody. I don't care about any of those episodes because wow. I have not been as excited to talk to the host and the producer of the number one podcast in America, American Radical, the story who killed Roseanne Boylan, is the host of American Radical and Eamon on the weekend nights on MSNBC, Eamon Mohideen, and the producer of this amazing podcast. I tip my hat. I told you this fair Farrah Preeti, uh, as one producer to another. Preethi Verathon, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast and being with us today. Thank Thank you, guys. Listen, I want to get into this because this this series really captivated me. um, And I was telling both of you guys this off air about, you know, my family going through this. We're going to get into that in a second. But Eamon, I turn to you for a second, because January 6th has become so polarizing. As a topic in this country, we know why. There's one faction of a political party that is saying that it was FBI crisis actors, et cetera, et cetera. But we should all be on one side of this, right? Breaking into government buildings, bad, right? Shouting "Hang Mike Pence," bad, right? Your series really goes into how one person, and to be honest, probably more people, get down rabbit holes of conspiracy theories, et cetera, and then all of a sudden they find themselves on January 6. Can you take our audience into the series? What attracted you? I know the personal relationship you have with Roseanne's brother-in-law and Preeti as well. Like what, what got you guys to saying, we could do a whole series about this.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, well, thank you very much for having us. And we're honored to be here with you guys and, and speaking about this because it's such an important conversation. And, and thank you so much for giving the podcast a shout out. Um, you know, we, the story began because we all lived through January 6th. And I think that day we all watched in horror how close our democracy came to being essentially, you know, at the very least disrupted in a worst case scenario overturned. Because if the election would have been overturned, if something would have happened that would have stopped that process uh, from being fulfilled, we could have been in a very different reality. So I think the gravity and the severity of the moment was not lost on anybody who witnessed it that day. And as we now see, even from the January 6th commission, Republicans themselves, even Fox News hosts, realized how serious this moment was what I didn't realize was the personal connection. And that wouldn't come until a few days later. But even with the personal connection, I think the message that my friend Justin Cave sent me saying the family believes that she was radicalized and used that exact word, and also saying that it happened in the span of six months, really was an alarm bell for me. Because I knew that town, I knew the community of Kennesaw. um, And for me, it was a bit of a disconnect from what I had grown up in the community that I had grown up in and hearing that word radicalized was something I had seen overseas um, in my years as a foreign correspondent covering terrorist attacks in Europe and in the Middle East. I just never imagined that I would be hearing it in the context of Kennesaw, Georgia and, and the hometown that I went to. So it immediately as a journalist, it piqued my interest. I connected with Justin. I began to learn more about the story and why the family felt that she had been radicalized. Um, and in the process of doing so, I felt like there was something here that we as a society could learn from, from this one family's experience. And that was part of the reason why I immediately reached out to my colleagues at NBC and see if we can find a way to tell this story. And so that's the that's how it began. That's the genesis of it.
1: Eamon, it's it's hard for me to ignore Amen. as you use the word radical which is actually what drew me to the podcast when Mike had uh, put it in front of me, um, like you all, and the f- just full fact here, the four of us in this conversation are all people of color. Um, we hear the word radical or radicalization. We think of a process that typically um, refers to fundamental fundamentalist or extreme Islamic terrorism. That's usually sort of what we hang our hats on in the United States with that term. It was interesting to th- hear that term as related to a white person and an organization through QAnon that essentially is mostly predominantly made up of white people. In this, in the over the course of developing this podcast, the interviews you both have done, and just a lot of the learnings you've taken, what did you find to be, and Aiman, specifically just with your background in international correspondence? Where did you see sort of the trends and similarities between the process that Roseanne had gone through as it relates to what we've seen overseas, oftentimes when we've used the word radical or or the process of radicalization?
2: Yeah, and you know, it's something that a lot of my friends and certainly a lot of my Muslim friends pointed out, and, and it's not to, to make light of the situation, but to the point that you are describing, the irony of a Muslim man in America talking about radicalism in the context of a white middle class woman in this country is not lost on a lot of people who over the last, as you just said, over the last 20 years, have come to understand radicalism only in the context of, um, you know, extremist terrorist attacks overseas and the so-called war on terror. And so for them, the framing that was being, you know, kind of flipped upside down, which is like, wait a minute, how can radicalism happen to people that are not the way that we have been told radicalism only exists, which is among a certain religion committed in a certain type of uh, context or in a certain type of uh, framing. So, you know, for me, and, and, and Preeti has known about this because I've talked about it a lot. and It was one of the central tenets of, of the podcast. I had seen a lot of similarities with the radicalism that I had covered overseas, which is that there generally is kind of like a little bit of a triangle uh, of where Roseanne and the profiles of people that I've seen in the past really genuinely fit in, which was there are people who have suffered, um, meaning they have been down on their luck. They've had some uh, problems, perhaps uh, either personal tragedies that they had to overcome or challenges that they had to overcome, and that puts them in a position of disadvantage. There is disinformation that they're constantly being bombarded with that they are subject to. And then there is this element of demagoguery. And when you see that in the context of overseas, the demagogues, the people who would say to these destitute people or the, the, the people that are down on their luck, hey, follow me let's go and fix this. We can solve the problems and all of the ills of your society by attacking Americans, by killing the infidels, by blowing up uh, you know, whatever we needed to. And so when they can get people warped into that men- mentality, these demagogues can exploit the vulnerability of certain people and get them to follow the disinformation they put out there. And so in the context of Rosanne in, in the United States, The disinformation was there as we explored in the, in the podcast. Um, Roseanne was somebody who struggled with personal addiction and had all kinds of uh, personal challenges in her life at some point. And so it made her vulnerable to conspiracy theories and disinformation. And what was new, I think in this particular context was Donald Trump, who for the most part functioned as a demagogue for these people. He exploited their vulnerabilities and said to them, if you follow me, and do what I tell you, we can fix the society's ills, we can save our democracy, we can save the children, part of the conspiracy theory that they believed in. And so that was a bit of a, um, a similarity in the pattern that I saw between between what I did overseas and, and what I did on this story with Preeti.
3: I want you to chime in here because you know I mentioned to you obviously I was a producer in news and sports, and so some of the research that you did, some of the interviews that you did. What, what's a key takeaway you want the audience to take away from this? Not only the podcast itself, but the entire story of Roseanne and her family, not really understanding where she, you know, veered to over the last twelve months.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I to me, I think the biggest takeaway and part of why you know, Eamon approached our team and part of why I was so interested in his pitch and his story. And he said, hey, I have this friend from high school. He sent me a Facebook message. Take a look at this Facebook message just because it's not just the word radicalized, which was really interesting to us, but the time span, right? That this thing can happen really fast. And so for me, and I, I think it's sort of working because, you know, I try not to read the comments too much, but I, whatever. I I definitely read the comments for the podcast. I think people are recognizing that this thing can happen quickly. It can happen subtly and it can happen in ways that you wouldn't expect, you know, like Roseanne sort of fell down her own rabbit hole and became radicalized within a span of essentially six months. And so for me, I think if people can kind of recognize that thing that this thing is more like ubiquitous than we realize, and that it can happen pretty quickly, I feel like the podcast will sort of have succeeded in that sense because that's just, you know, I came to this story, you know, understanding Eamon's background, understanding understanding what happened, but really with a pretty open mind, right? I was like, I'm just going to talk to as many people in Roseanne's life as I possibly can. And that's the thing I kept pulling away, that they were so shocked by the difference, that they never saw it coming, that, you know, a lot of them like breathlessly wanted to tell me about what she was like in March, in March of 2020, this is what Roseanne Boyland was like. And by August of 2020, she was a completely different person. And so I think, you know, like that's, that's the thing that I really have taken away from this. Like I've spent a little bit more time even in my own life thinking about that uncle I'd never message because I'm like, they just have crazy ideas and I'm not going to talk to them. Instead of trying to like, Fully alienate them in my brain. I now I'm like maybe that one Facebook post they posted is a little bit more dangerous than I thought, and I should reach out and communicate with them and see what's going on. And so for me, like that's the real big thing I pulled away from all of this is that it it it's not literally everywhere, but it's much more common than you realize, and that it can happen very very quickly.
1: To that to that end, what do you as? You both have gone through this journey, really, as journalists and, and storytellers if you both were talking to someone who had a concern that a member of their family may be going down a similar rabbit hole, what are some signs that in just the reporting you've done, just things you were observing as you've gone through this, that you would share with someone as things to pay attention to and look out for?
0: I think, look, these things are complicated, right? And I I feel like that there there are a lot of like, legitimate experts who are dedicating their lives, whether they are psychologists or therapists who are trying to understand radicalization and rabbit holes. And they are the primary people I would sort of direct, direct someone's attention to, right? There are a lot of like legitimate resources from people who have doctorates in this thing, who are spending time on this, but from sort of what we learned, it's a lot of it is sort of about just paying attention to the thing that a person is saying and like asking them why they think that, right? It's like, what is your information source? Where are you getting that from? Was it from a New York Times article or was it from, you know, a YouTube video? And really sort of like pushing back on the narratives that people are building. Because one of the takeaways I had personally is that a lot of this sort of grows in isolation. One one story we kind of track in this piece is about how, like as Roseanne fell deeper and deeper into a rabbit hole, you know, her family couldn't totally identify with her and they didn't really know whether to be hyper supportive or not be supportive or to like sort of aggressively question her or not. And as they were figuring that out for themselves, you know, she found, she found community in other places, right? It's like, no matter what people are believing, they're going to sort of go seek community. And I think a lot of it is about challenging people's information channels. Cause this is in many ways, what this kind of comes down to, right? It's like, where do you get your information? Where do you get your news? Is it at 2 AM on a YouTube video from a person who is not accredited, but is like saying something really poetic, or is it, you know, from an accredited news source where you can say, yeah, like this scientist from the CDC said X, Y, Z thing. And so that's personally one of my biggest takeaways is just really asking people, like, don't, you know, not being afraid to say, okay, that's an interesting idea. Where did it come from? Um, I think that's really important.
3: I want to get into now my personal life. I don't I don't mean to sound callous when I say this, OK, my wife and she's going to hate me for invoking her sister that, you know, we, we don't speak to them anymore because and I'm, I'm going to quote her. The Proud Boys are good people. Um, so that sentence right there set me off uh, during the protest that happened in the summer with George Floyd, uh, you know, uh, my father in law, you know, two days after the protest. Hey, why are they still protesting? Oh, I didn't realize that we had made changes already to legislations. Um, so a lot of this stuff that I and by the way, I want to preface this and I don't want to denigrate the entire state, but it was all in Florida. Um, so a lot of what I was hearing and I told you guys, this was very where are you guys getting this from? Like, where are you guys getting this from? It is driving me crazy. And I wanted to do something about it. But one of the things that I heard in the story. And I believe it was in episode four about the autopsy with Roseanne. And we're talking about how she's died and, the, you know, the medical examiner report. And, you know, we're getting into, you know, the rabbit holes and stuff like that that she did. And again, I don't want to sound callous here. I feel bad for the sister. But should I care? Should we care as a society that that person lacking education, whatever vice she had from drugs or whatever, should we care that that person? chose to drive 14 hours north to D.C. to do something that she knows is illegal and suffer the consequences of dying on that day. Because if that had happened to my family, to my wife's sister, who, again, proud boys are good people. Trump will be back in August. Trump will, and, that, and that person passed away. Mike Leon right now, again, may sound callous. I think I speak for Nick as well. I don't care. You chose to go down that hole that I told you Again, as somebody who worked in the Fox News building, and not that Fox is the entirety of all this and, and the root stem, because if you put on OAN at nine o'clock, you'll you'll hear worse. But I know that you're getting fed lies. But but she didn't march to the Capitol. Roseanne did. Should I? I turn to both of you. The the finger on the pulse. If both of you had to you know, think about, is it education? Is it that, you know, maybe somebody was in her ear? Like, what should I care? Should we care that this woman did something illegal and died that day about this?
2: Uh, you know, I'm a, I'll go first. Uh, the short answer is, yes, you should care. Um, and the reason why is because we live in a society where this woman, Roseanne and others, um, participated in an insurrection that almost toppled our government. So if you didn't care, you could have right now been living in a situation where constitutionally the process could have been derailed and who knows what we would have been dealing with. So you ignore these societal risks at your own peril. And what we've seen is if you don't recognize that we are both dealing with a disinformation pandemic where people's lives are effectively being ruined based on the information that they're getting, and it's leading them to do dangerous things that have consequences for the rest of us, um, then you're really gambling with something that is very dangerous. And put aside your family experience for a second, put aside Roseanne's experience for a second. There are people out there who are consuming information and then using that information to go commit acts of violence, whether it is somebody who thinks, you know, who believes in Pizzagate, who thinks that there is a, you know, pizza restaurant in DC or pedophilia is happening or a sex trafficking ring is being run out of. And so they go in there with a gun to shoot it up or somebody who believes in a conspiracy theory and goes and and commits an act of violence against politicians or commits an act of violence against um, a small newspaper. I think there are plenty examples of where ignoring this form of radicalization and disinformation that is happening online has a greater impact. On, <clears throat> on our society and our safety and our security. And it's not the kind of country and society that we wanna live in. So at the end of the day as, as journalists, we put the spotlight on this particular family in this interaction to see what is it that we can collectively learn from it and see if there's anything else that we need to be mindful of to prevent something like this from happening again and to understand, why this phenomenon is happening in america at this point in our uh, in our de- development
0: i will just add that like this thing is endemic so you have to care because it's it's happening widely right and we sort of have a choice right we can have our heads in the sand or we can recognize that this thing is happening to your sister and to a lot of other people and i am glad Eamon used the word pandemic because we've been talking about pandemics a lot in this you know biohealth way but you know, in this public health way, right? But this is a pandemic too. And I think we are kind of in an information war. So yeah, I, I would say you absolutely should care. And I would also like to point out, you know, we're all we're all like journalists here, but it's like caring and sympathizing are completely different things. And caring about something doesn't mean that you have to decide that someone is uh, not culpable for their actions, right? Like those are those are very different things. And I always saw like my job and Amon's job was to try to explain. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to explain what happened to Roseanne and how this happens to someone. And in that, I think you should very much care about why this happens, but you get to decide how much you care about the other details, right? It's like, that's that's the kind of beauty of the podcast listening experience. You get to decide how you feel about her sister, how you feel about her, how much you blame her, how much you blame someone else. Like that's not, we don't really weigh in on that. We're just trying to explain to you as journalists how this happened.
1: The, the series just wrapped up on Sunday. You know, episode just episode five just came out from where you both stand just in reflection of the editing process the storytelling you've all done if the series were to extend where do you was there any pieces of of which that you felt would be a place to further explore I guess this is a long way of asking the cutting room floor question but where were there opportunities that just through editorial decisions making and such that, it felt as though that was not necessarily a place to explore that in reflection, maybe if the series were extended or other opportunities came up to dive further into this story, or potentially others, I guess for that matter, to be able to explore further what comes up for you both around that.
2: Yeah, Preethi, you want to go first? I mean, Preethi had a much more granular level of the storytelling throughout the process. So I'll let her I'd let her start with that and then I can kind of give you a more of a macro picture of what I was thinking. But Preethi, go first.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I will. Producers to producers, it's like there was a lot left on the cutting room floor, you know, a lot. Like, I cannot even tell you how many people I talked to. And, uh, you know, I always say that everything matters. And every person you talk to, every document you uncover, every diary entry you find or photograph you look at sort of helps infuse the reporting process. And all of that knowledge is definitely reflected in the series, but it's five episodes. And our goal is to try to create something really tight, you know, it's that every scene matters, every piece of tape matters, every sort of twist and turn in the narrative really does deliver and kind of like culminate in that final episode. What I will say is like, I, you know, there are many, there are many like places we could have gone with the story, but I personally feel like the podcast really answers the primary question, which is why was she radicalized? And the interviews that we used and the sort of like tape that we use ultimately really answer that question. And so I'm not sure there's, you know, a lot, a lot more that I would necessarily want to go into for this story in particular, because I think part of having, you know, and me and Eamon you know, worked as a duo to put this thing together, but we have like a whole incredible team behind us, which I should say like credible editors, incredible, you know, APs, just people really working behind us to make this thing amazing. And part of what made this podcast so strong was like the really sharp editing, really asking ourselves, like, does this thing matter? Does it not matter? For me personally, I think, I mean, who knows? And we never know what's going to happen, but I feel like if anything, this has opened the door for me to say, there are so many other stories like this. And I actually you know, through spending so much time with Roseanne's family and in a way Roseanne, like I am kind of interested in saying like, what's the next American radical story, right? Because Roseanne is not the only American radical. And so I'll let Eamon speak to this as well, but it's like, for me, the thing that I'm most interested in is figuring out where can we go next? What is the sort of story we can tell next about American radicalism? Because I, I know for a fact that Roseanne is just the tip of the iceberg. There's way more here.
2: So, I mean, just to just to add to that really quickly, I think that, the, and, and if you kind of see where we left off at the end of the series, which is really a very interesting phenomena for me, is how a certain segment of our society and our politicians are running away with the narrative of Roseanne's life and what happened on January 6th. And I think this is very interesting because it's kind of like a... Um, It's the beginning of a next chapter of recruitment and radicalism and recreating and rewriting a narrative about that day. And so when you can take something that happened um, as clear as day, something that the world witnessed, that was documented, like January 6th, and then rewrite the narrative around it, you could see in real time how disinformation plays a role in recruiting another generation or another group of people into radicalism or going down that road. So if you ask me, like, you know, what did we leave out or is there anything that we left out about Roseanne's life? I mean, look, you know, we have hundreds of hours of footage. Um, You know, if we had six months to tell this podcast, you could probably even go into a whole entire deeper profile of Roseanne. But for the, for the sake of what we set out to answer, which is how did she get radicalized? How did it happen so quickly? And why is this so dangerous? I think we achieved that. But as we see at the end of the episode, at the end of the series of episode five, um, we're right back at the beginning of a new wave of politicians who are willing to ignore the facts and the reality of January 6th to achieve a political objective. And so we're right back on, uh, you know, you know, I guess like you know, square one of, of what are we gonna do now when you have politicians who are, who are rewriting this? And we can also kind of, now that we have this sense, I think of how people get radicalized in this current climate, you can take that model and start looking back as Preeti was saying um, about other Americans and who have gone down similar roads of radicalism and what we need to learn from their experiences and, and the damages that they've done as well.
0: To Eben's point, We couldn't have predicted, when we started reporting this out in like February or March, we could not have predicted, you know, the last episode gets us to like a week before it went live, right? We are talking about things that literally happened a week before the episode. You know, I'm in the writer's room and I could tell you we were writing as news was unfolding and we had to keep rewriting and rewriting because the news around Roseanne was changing. And I just, I think there's something like to Eamon's point, I think there's something like deeply, deeply ironic that Roseanne in a way died because of conspiracies, because of sort of consuming misinformation. And now her own story is at the center, at the nucleus of like a new swirling conspiracy that is making its way into Congress. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm so excited about like, or rather interested, that's the probably more appropriate way to put it. Like I'm interested in all these other stories, but I think even Roseanne's story is now folding into this new chapter and I even put that really well, but. That that to me was the crazy part. It's like, we couldn't have even predicted that. You know, when we greenlit the story, when we started reporting on it, we didn't know that news is going to break about her just weeks before our last series went out. And the fact that it is, and the fact that there's this like sort of dramatic irony to all of it, I think is telling of the sort of information war that we're in. Well, listen, I,
3: I want to pose something to both of you as journalists. And we, we've done a bunch of different segments about news judgment on this program and news judgment more so from the lens of the consumer. When I talk about that on this podcast, I talk about taking a series of facts and commonalities across an article that you see on MSNBC, Bloomberg, Reuters, whatever it is, and saying, OK, these are the common set of facts. There was a car fire in Queens and this many people died, et cetera, et cetera. I, people like Roseanne, Uh, lack basic principles of what journalists like yourself do, you know, sourcing things on and off the record before publishing. Um, Within this Roseanne Boylan story, what would you say to people since both of you work at a pretty prominent network? What would you say about news judgment and how they should be consuming news?
2: That's a, I mean, that's a good question. And and it's something that I've dealt with a lot overseas again, and not not to make comparisons, but I always tell people to diversify their news sources. And, you know, we live in a a day and age where you get bombarded with information, where you can find out within seconds, something that has happened. You can find out, um, you know, you can find out that there's a suicide bomber in Afghanistan within seconds, and then the number of casualties and the death toll. Very few people are ever going to understand the context of why something like that happened. And so, what I try to encourage people to do nowadays is not just to look at their phones to hear specific lines of information, but to really understand and have more context. Try to apply knowledge in understanding what it is that you're reading and what it is that you're looking at. And it's hard because we have so many information streams that are bombarding us every day with social media and and, the likes of YouTube. And Facebook, and then you turn on the TV and you have multiple channels and you're online and you have like dozens of websites, you can't even tell which websites are authentic or not. But at the end of the day, um, people like to criticize the media and that is very valid and the media is not above criticism, but there also has to be an ounce of responsibility on the consumers of information and that's the one thing that I take away from this which is everybody who consumes information has a responsibility you take serious what you put in your body, whether it's the food you drink, the, uh, sorry, the food you eat, the the alcohol you drink, the, the beverages you drink, whatever it is you're consuming as a consumer in this society, you're mindful of it. We have labels to tell us what's safe and what's not safe. And you're, you try to be very careful of what you are um, putting into your system. Information should not be any different. You need to apply a certain degree of rigor when you are deciding what type of information and who's providing that information that you are going to ultimately uh, consume. Now, it's not to kind of like, you know, sound uh, dismissive of it. You know, there's a lot of criticism to go around the media and the media systems in this country. But I do think a big responsibility of it also is with the readers, the watchers, the consumers in making sure that they are getting reliable, accurate information and to test the information that they are consuming by cross-checking it, cross-referencing it, going to primary sources, diversifying it, not to get siloed into specific streams of information, whether it's liberal media or conservative media or social media or online media, but to try to diversify as much as you can.
0: I, I will just add that this is happening a lot in my personal life. You know, I am the child of Indian immigrants and there's a lot happening politically in India. And this is a conversation I have with my parents all the time, right? Where it's like, feelings, basically debates about Modi. It's like the, the TLDR of that. But the point yeah. is where where people get information is a really important part of that. And the only thing I will add to all of that, and Eamon put it beautifully, is just, I always ask people, when you're doing your research, you need to honestly ask yourself, are you trying to confirm a thought you already have or are you trying to generally answer a question? You know, I like I did this little kind of thought experiment in my own home with my partner, and he's a night owl, and I'm an early bird, and so we, you know, we were like, let's figure out what's better for you, right? Like, who's smarter? And we went down our little research holes, and it was very obvious. You know, we were looking at the New York Times, we were looking at a lot of accredited sources. And I think to Eamon's point, like diverse sources, but it was very obvious at the end of the day that he was trying to confirm his own perspective, which is that night owls are smarter. And I was trying to confirm my own perspective, which is that early. And the truth was that the research is actually mixed, right? That like entrepreneurs tend to be night owls, but early birds tend to have more professional and monetary success. And so I always just ask people, because I really think the way that the internet works these days is like, you almost always can confirm a belief you have. And that's kind that's the sort of scary part, right? It's like, If you go in thinking a certain thing, you can find sites or sources that will confirm that belief. And so I just think you really need to ask yourself, in addition to diversifying your sources, why are you going down this research hole? Because the term research has become loaded. Like the number of times I have family members that are like, well, I did my own research uh, and I just feel my, my blood pressure.
3: Rise. I,
1: I,
2: I'm like, what does that mean? We're all dealing with it with like COVID. How many, how many people have told us, like I've heard about a group of doctors in Canada and you're like, wait, what? So like you found the one doctor that like nobody else in the <laughs> world has been able to hear, but you know the one doctor through a cousin or a friend that's like writing about the vaccines that has the science. That like three hundred thousand other scientists around the world were not able to uncover. Like, yeah, what, what world are we living in here? You know,
3: I was just yeah. about to say, Kyrie Irving, you're not doing research. That's not the kind of research we're yeah. talking about. I we're wasn't do- here
1: to hear Nicki Minaj slander. Personally, yeah. I was not told that, <laughs> that would happen on this yeah. episode. Yeah,
3: yeah but That's it's true. And 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 again, we talked about this before. Nick, I'm going to let you go. But we we talked about this before. We're trying to get an X percent of engagement when we post something, just like you guys are trying to get an X percent. Nicki Minaj your personal responsibility of 22 million followers and 157 on Instagram, there's going to be siphons of that that say, I saw it there. And I know because it's bled over and we've all had this commonality of it's bleeding over into our life. I saw this here, I saw this there, and it's not a trusted source for every 25 trusted sources. There's 10 on online where you can find the same thing from a, you know, dot com, you know, Mike's blog.com, Mike's thoughts.com. So it's there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation that you have to battle every day. I appreciate the the fight that you guys are doing. Go ahead, Nick.
1: It's hard not it's hard to ignore the fact that we're coming up on the anniversary of January 6th. And thinking about and thinking about your show, we think about Roseanne's story. What is the message of that event, you know, as we think of this individual person whose sort of lens we've seen the journey to January 6th from? What comes up for you both as we arrive at that anniversary? And what does it mean perhaps in the larger context of American history and our political future going forward?
2: So, I mean, I think for me, I think the, the big lesson is our democracy is a lot more fragile than, than what we think it is. Um, we are not that far away from having our democracy disrupted in a very serious way and, You know, we've been seeing it play out in slow motion for the last couple of years, I would argue, um, with things that have been happening on many different levels. I mean, you can go either on a state level, you can go in the legislative process, you can go in the electoral college process, you can go in the judiciary, and you can find these little threads that you can pull on and say, you know what, these things are undermining our democracy. But what we saw on January 6th, from my opinion, is an accelerant. What we saw is if there is somebody who is willing to stand up in front of the world and <clears throat> lie that the election was stolen and say that our election our election system was rigged or didn't work or there was violations that undermines the confidence of the 300 million people plus who live in this country, and you are able to get as you saw on January 6, let's say tens of thousands of people to go to the Capitol this time to disrupt that constitutional process, we're not that far off from seeing somebody else do it in a different way with more than tens of thousands of people who could plan for it a little bit differently, who could instead of using thousands of people like Roseanne, use people on the inside of Congress. Let's not forget that there were 100 plus members of the House of Representatives who voted to decertify the election results, who did not believe that the election results were legitimate. Couple that with the, you know, hundreds of local and state officials who also believe that the election was stolen, whether it be in Arizona or Georgia or Pennsylvania and trying to create this chaos. Our democracy is very fragile. And I think the lesson that we learned from this podcast is you may look at Roseanne and say, well, she has, she's not going to I mean, nobody cares about her in the context of how our democracy could possibly get trampled. But I think if you see the trajectory of her life in the span of six months going from somebody in Kennesaw, Georgia, a remote part of Georgia, somebody who was apolitical, according to her family, somebody who had never voted before. And in the span of six months saying, I believe in a cause that is willing to risk my life and go to the steps of the Capitol and stop the vote. I think that is a a very um, short distance as we learned in this podcast. So that's for me, as we approach this anniversary, I would say that um, our democracy is a little bit more vulnerable than it is. It may have survived 200 years, but it's not guaranteed that it will survive another 200 years with all of the new dynamics that are in play, information, disinformation, demagoguery, uh, you know, inequality in our society that creates this disparity of resentment between those that have and those that don't have. And Feeling that you're being left out of the political process and feeling that the democracy and the governance and the government no longer represent you. So you have this responsibility to try to go out and commit an act of violence, like overthrowing an election.
3: I feel like I've made two new friends. Nick, I feel you feel the same way because you and Preethi are going to connect. What was the Modi thing, Nick? What do you call Modi again? <laughs> What,
1: what? I forget what I used to refer to. I forget what you said, but Nick <laughs>
3: Nick is always texting me about Modi. And so yeah. anyway, listen, I rarely say this. Um, I love, 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 love this series. I cannot get enough of this. Like Nick said, if you make an episode six, seven, eight, nine, or even a season two, you will have two consumers here, Eamon and Preethi. You can catch Eamon. Every weekend hosting his show, Amen on MSNBC. Check out American Radical wherever you get your podcast, Preeti Verathon, the fantastic producer. I'm sure she's going to produce a bunch of other things. You need more spotlight, Preeti, because you are fantastic and this series is great. Thank you to both of you That's for true. being on the show. We truly appreciate the time you've given us, continued success, and continue the fight to battle against misinformation and disinformation.
2: Thank you, guys.
0: So Love. Much. Thank you. Thank
1: you.
3: All right. I could listen to that all day. Our thank yous to Eamon Mohideen and Preeti Verathon. Like I mentioned, the number one podcast in America, American Radical, available wherever you get your podcasts. The five-part epic series is available now. Um, You know, if you're driving on a long drive during the Christmas break, please, please listen to this series. It is important. I invoked my own family in there, but it is really important. There are people that are getting down the rabbit hole of pretending to do their own research, right? We talked about how research has become a buzzword. People are not understanding how to do it. We've got to get back to experts, people that have years of experience doing something scholarly articles like Nick talked about a while ago. Like this this series is is a must listen to as a cautionary tale for somebody that just let it slide all of a sudden within over a six month span. She's dying at the steps of the Capitol. Nick, a quick quick takeaway for you on the
1: series. Yeah, I mean, I think the timetable is crucial to understand. Over the course of six months, we have a person who's gone from being apolitical to wanting to watch, you know, dev- with devotion, a news program, uh, even recording it, which came up. Like these really fascinating things to a person that their engagement with their family has changed and it's happened so fast and it's happened as it relates to January 6. If anything for anyone you know listening to that show uh, or listening to our interview today understand that January 6 isn't just some political event. It's not something that we were all watching on the news that day and you know texting you know our friends and loved ones saying what the hell is going on? Like something built up to that. and I think what not, not I think I know what this podcast, what Amon and Preeti had told the story that they tell us explains, on a very personal level the road to that and it's not what you all think it's not you know just like roseanne's story is very is very important that way because it truly could happen to anyone and it can happen in a very short amount of time and we talked about you know during the interview what to notice again we're about to go into the holidays you know we're coming or we're in the midst of our holiday season right now You have family you have friends you can notice some odd behaviors and things that people are quoting to you and continue to bring up facebook or things about vaccines you know false and otherwise how to be mindful of it and this podcast at least for me personally was a really helpful reminder of things to be aware of and not just necessarily cutting out family from your life but understanding what's going on for them and digging in to know that to honor the fact that something isn't right and you have a choice to make do you disengage or you know or try to reengage a family member who for all intents and purposes is lost at that current moment yep i mean you know how i feel about
3: that you disengage but anyway um our big thank yous to them like i mentioned american radical the number one podcast in america check it out available wherever you get your podcast for this show video you want to watch the youtube clips of this episode check out our youtube channel ig tiktok twitter at can we please talk podcast on twitter at can we please talk as always i am mike leon
1: grateful to be a part of this amazing show and talk to some incredible people about their amazing show. I'm Nick Saberi.
3: Thank you so much, everybody. Happy holidays.